0: using the hashtag 10 Things to Tell You. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to 10 Things to Tell You and to yet another episode. One of my very favorite subjects of all time, books and reading. This is not just any episode about books and reading. We are going to focus on classic books today. Books that you should have read, books that are worth a reread. These are like the classics that maybe you touched on them in high school. Maybe you read the Notes of them in high school. But now it is time as an adult evolved reader that you are, it is time to either take a second look at these books or pick them up for the first time because the books that we are gonna share today are really worthy. They have been vetted because as you know, a lot of classic books are maybe a big fat chore. These books are really going to like enhance your reading life. I believe it. With me today is my friend Colleen Powell. I'm so excited she's here. Colleen and I started working together about a year ago. I hired her as an editor on this show and to help me with the secret tapes before the book launched and all of this. Y'all have heard me talk about how last year hiring people to help me made a huge difference in my life. Colleen is one of those people, after we started working together for a few months, she was just editing my audio We had such good synergy. She totally got what I was doing that I asked her to help me produce my Patreon that I launched this summer called Secret Stuff. I asked her to help me with all of that, not just edit it, but help me like really produce it and put it all together. If you've been part of the Secret Stuff Patreon, you know Colleen. She is helping us on all of the Zoom meetings. She's moderating. She's jumping in. She's just become a really wonderful and important partner for me in this whole podcasting gig and life. So, welcome,
1: Colleen, to the big show. Oh my- it's it's to tell you. Gosh, that was an introduction. You're going to make me cry. Hi. <laughs> All the listeners, I told
0: them about how we're working together, but tell them a little bit about you
1: as a human. As a human being. Well, I am a mom and a wife. I live just outside of Chicago. Um, I have four kids ranging in ages from 11 to six. And I have sort of just done every job there is. It feels like I've been a teacher and a youth pastor. I've done some advocacy work for the hearing loss community. One of my children is deaf and I've been a podcaster. And now I am doing this weird thing where I help produce and edit people's podcasts. So I'm very thankful for it because it has brought you into my life, um, which actually you were, you were in my life before this as a, as I was a longtime reader and listener, but now I get to actually like know you and work with you. And that has been so fun.
0: You know, what's funny. Can I just tell everyone how we actually came (laughs) into contact? Cause I don't think I've said this publicly, but I was on Twitter I love Twitter. I know it's like so popular to hate Twitter and like call it a dumpster fire. Twitter remains my favorite after all these years. Anyway, I was on Twitter complaining about the program that I was using to edit this show for years and years and years. I edited uh, this show. I edited everything myself and I was on Twitter kind of complaining because I had lost a big file. It had crashed and I was like complaining about it on Twitter as one does. And You tweeted me back, like some thoughts on how to fix it. And then you followed up with an email with like really helpful and interesting tips. And in your email, you were like, just so you know, I'm not a random, you had been working with Meg Teets and sort of awesome and, and doing some side stuff for her. And so you were like, I really like, I know about podcast editing. I'm not just, (laughs) you know, from Twitter person. person, And so that started a dialogue. And I just thought that was so amazing because, you know, who follows up from Twitter? It like was great.
1: Well, I I have been in that place where you cannot, you've lost all the files and learning GarageBand, which is what I think I was trying to teach you is it's a weird thing. And it took me a lot of hours to finally figure it out. And so I was like, if I can shorten that time, I would be very excited to do that. So,
0: (laughs) Well, it was helpful and I'm so appreciative that then we started working together after that. Listen, the reason that we're doing this episode, first of all, I love to talk about books. And I should also say now that we haven't done a books and reading episode since episode 132. So like two months ago, where I talked about the best books of the summer. This summer, I read nine, nine five-star books. And so I did that episode about the best books of the summer. I didn't talk about all nine, but I talked about like these amazing five-star books that I had read. And then since then, because this is how reading life goes, right? Like, I don't know. Have I read a five-star book in the fall? I'm not sure. It has definitely kept me from doing like a best books lately episode because I'm like, I don't know what to talk about.
1: Uh, I've been there. So
0: we are doing... Classic books today, we are going to share a few of the best stuff we have read lately, in addition to the classics that we're going to talk about. But the reason that we wanted to do this episode to talk about classic novels is because over on Patreon, the Secret Stuff Patreon, where we work together, we are reading classic novels this winter. So, all summer, we read Stephen King. This fall, we read two amazing nonfiction books and had amazing meetings talking through those nonfiction books, our Zoom meetings for the book club over there, just like literally my favorite part of 2021. And this winter, we are going to read a couple of classic novels. The first one we're going to start with, we're going to talk about later in this episode. So that's why we're talking about classics, because it's been on our mind as we prep for Secret Stuff Book Club. But before we talk about classics, let's talk about a few things that we've read lately that are worth mentioning here. And since you're not on the internet all the time, like I am talking about the best books that you've
1: read, why don't you go first? Okay. Well, I've got two great books that I've read in the last few months or so. The first one is The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley. Have you read this one? I haven't, but I've seen it all over the bookstagram. It's, it is lovely. It's a delight. I feel like is the best word to describe this book. So it centers on a gay man named Patrick, who is a former TV star. I kept picturing Sean Hayes as I was reading it. Like that is who I feel like they were writing it for. And he is kind of hiding out in Palm Springs. His TV career is sort of stopped for the moment. And he is kind of He's just retreated to Palm Springs. And at the beginning of the book, you find out that his sister-in-law, Sarah has just died. She happens to also be his best friend. He was the one who introduced her to his brother and he is headed to the East coast for her funeral. And at the funeral, you find out that Patrick's brother is not okay and needs Patrick to take care of his two children, Patrick's niece and nephew named Maisie and Grant. Uh, They call him Gup, Gay Uncle Patrick, which is like just really sweet and charming. And it's just like such a funny, charming book that is also very heartfelt. Uh, It's a story about grief and about family and how we kind of continue on after something terrible has happened. And you just really, you fall in love with Patrick, you fall in love with the kids and their relationship. And uh, I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this one.
0: Okay, well hold on because I have seen the cover for The Gunkle and like I can picture the font in the mm-hmm. cover and never in my life would I have known that this book was about grief. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> it well that's why I love it is because it is about grief and it really deals with it really accurately but in this very like lighthearted way and I don't I I don't want to like undersell it because it is like really going to the the deeper places, but yeah, it, it, you're right. That it's very cartoony on the cover, but it really goes to some places with loss and grief and kids grief that I just thought was really beautiful.
0: Well, that is so interesting. You're kind of selling me on it when I had sort of dismissed it in a way, but also, you know, I don't do
1: light. You don't do light. No, I don't know that this was necessarily in your Venn diagram, but I do think, I do think you might like it. It might not be a five-star, but it could be a four-star read for you.
0: Okay. I'm glad you shared it, especially because I feel like for a lot of people who listen to this show, they do not share my reading taste. In fact, people tell me all the time that they listen to my books and reading stuff, but they like, I'm like their book opposite. Instead of being a book twin, I'm like their book devil. Is that the right word? Yeah. We're <laughs> like, if I love it, they just remove it from their list pretty much. <laughs> so I'm glad that you shared this book because I think that it will appeal to a lot of people. Okay. The book I'm going to, Share is different than that. <laughs> so I'm not even finished with this one because it is a very slow and deliberate read, but I feel strongly enough about it to not only share it here as like something I really want people to pick up, but also it pairs very well with the topic that we're covering today. And this is a nonfiction book called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. Now <laughs> I readily admit that people love George Saunders. You know, he wrote Lincoln in the Bardo a few years ago.
1: I flat didn't understand that book. (laughs) I listened to it on audio and I think that's the only way to do it. Honestly.
0: (laughs) Okay. I still have it on my shelf because I think that I definitely picked it up in a time where I needed something less thinky, Mm -hmm. like less. It involves less brain power. I started to read it and I was like, I actually don't understand this book. And I, obviously, I'm not a dumb person, and I'm a regular reader. So I just was like, I there's this is too hard for me right now. And but people like love that book so much. So I still have it on my shelf, but I I couldn't hack it. I need to re- repick it back up. But the reason that I bought this is because this is like a master class in literature. Now he is specifically going through Russian literature because this is a course that he teaches. He's a professor at Syracuse. But I think that anybody, even if you're not as attached to Russian literature as I am, I'm a big Russian lit fan, huge. I took a lot of Russian lit courses in college. And he is working through, like it's almost like his course, whatever the courses that he teaches in this book but it's that's not boring (laughs) you might think well I don't want to return to my lit classes that's why it fits this uh episode perfectly is because if you ever get nostalgia for your old lit classes this might be the book for you he's going through these seven short stories from some of the Russian masters who are like some of the best storytellers in all of history and all of literature he does not in fact use my favorite Russian writer, Dostoevsky, that's not who he uses. He's doing Tolstoy, Gogol, Chekhov, and I forgot the fourth one, but anyway, he's going through seven short stories, almost page by page or section by section and walking you through like how to construct a story or what we learn from these characterizations and this writing, and again, If you miss this from like your school days, this will be a joy for you. But why I'm talking about it here is even if you don't miss it or you think, I don't understand why we would want to read this (laughs) in our spare time. I have a lot of people who talk to me in like book club settings or when I talk about books on the internet where they say some version of like, I didn't even think about the character this way or I didn't even think about the themes that were happening. I didn't catch this underlying thread throughout the novel or whatever, because maybe people didn't come to reading until later in their life. Maybe they didn't take a lot of lit classes when they were young and they didn't really discover joy of reading until, you know, they were adults or whatever. And so if you think, I don't understand how to think about novels sometimes, or you know what I mean? Like, I don't even, I've had people say this, like, I don't, know how to think about it this is a lit class in a book but he's funny it's not boring and he really is going like page by page so he really is holding your hand it made me feel smarter Hmm. and i have read these authors and i've taken a lot of lit and it still made me be like oh right this is like how to see what an author is doing the breadcrumbs that an author is, is leaving on the road for you as you're reading a story, like why certain details are included, you know, what it means when a character just comes in and out, if that doesn't work. I I don't know. I really am enjoying myself because I did, I did enjoy literature classes. And so for me, it has been nostalgic, but also like reinvigorated, like my love of reading. It also makes you want to read harder. Hmm. And this is something that I have to preach to myself that I definitely preach when I talk about books is I love a fluffy read. I just said, I couldn't even handle George Saunders book, Lincoln and the Bardo, but I think it's important that we read harder at least several times a year. Like, you know, maybe not if you're like going through a really difficult time in your life or something like that, but challenge yourself to read harder periodically. I think it's important. And This made me be like, oh, this is why we read better stuff. This is why we read classics. This is why we read literary fiction. So anyway, that is called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by
1: George Saunders. I was out when you said Russian literature, but I might be back in now. You may have convinced me. (laughs) Wait, you don't like Russian lit? I don't like Russian lit. I'm
0: a bad English major. So Russian lit is hard because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Like it's so much harder than English lit or whatever. And also they, the way that their language does names, one character has like four to six names, literally. Yeah. And it's, that's hard. You have to like make notes. <laughs> well, like, cause you're like, have we changed characters? What is the world is happening? And it's the same person and they're using like their slang name versus like their formal name. Like, you know, it's hard. I get it. And I don't, I wouldn't like necessarily like spend my weekend day doing that, but it, it's worth it if you do. All
1: right. All right. You're convincing me. It was so good. I was like, oh, we got to talk about it. Uh, I just finished The House on the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Clune. Have you heard of this one?
0: I have heard of this one. Also, again, like the gunkle, I'm picturing the cover. Yeah. I don't know anything about it.
1: Yes. The cover is also very kind of cartoony. That is interesting. I didn't think about that. Both of those covers. It's also probably not in your kind of Venn diagram of books, it's a magical realism, which isn't necessarily always my thing. I, I love me some Harry Potter, but that's about as far as it goes with me. But this is a book about Linus, who is a government worker who works for what's called the department in charge of magical youth. So in this world, it's kind of our world, but there are magical people there. And it would seem that the magical people are kind of feared and controlled. And there's maybe some prejudice against the magical people. So magical children sort of get collected and sent to orphanages. Magical adults have to register with the government. And there's a lot of kind of propaganda. There's all these posters up around town that say, if you see something, say something with regard to magical people. It's sort of this, like, we're very afraid and we need to contain and control. And Linus's job, he's kind of like a social worker for magical youth. So he goes to check on these orphanages to make sure the children are being treated okay, and that they're, you know, taken care of. And if there's an incident with a youth and their magical abilities, he sort of gets sent in. And at the beginning of the book, he, you kind of see that he is, he's sort of lonely. He's sad. He's a very by the book, kind of a guy. Um, he loves the rules and regulations book, and he is good at his job. And he gets sent on a top secret assignment to a house on an Island containing highly classified and somewhat dangerous magical children and he doesn't know anything about this assignment. The um, extremely upper management, which is the highest bureaucracy of the government, extremely upper management has sort of sent him and they have not given him very many details. And he gets there and he meets Arthur, who is in charge of the orphanage and the six magical youths, all of whom are kind of highly unique in their magical abilities. And as the book progresses, you sort of see what happens when this by-the-book character kind of gets mixed in with these kooky, magical youth uh, and Arthur, who is sort of a character in and of himself. And I, I thought it was delightful. Again, I'm going to use that word again, but it was just... Like the characters were so endearing. The, the six magical youth were so endearing. It was funny. I loved Arthur and Linus's relationship. I don't, you know, like I said, I'm not a big like magical realism, but I really loved the world. I love, I loved the world that he created in this book. It's beautifully written. And it was just like one of those books that you just kind of like hold when it's over and you're like, oh, I, I want to go back in the world with these sweet little characters. It's sweet. It's probably not for you, but- I really loved it.
0: <laughs> so sweet and delightful mm-hmm. are my devil words. Yes. I'm
1: sorry. I'm sorry. I kind of did it on purpose. I was like, I'm going to counter the, the normal Laura Tremaine <laughs> recommendations. Where do you get most of your book recommendations? I mean, I get a lot of them from you, but I also, this one actually was a, uh, some friends of mine where I have a group text with a couple girls and to they, The two of them had, re, had read it and really loved it. And I was like, well, I'll try this one out. I get a little bit from bookstagram. I do like a little bit of when I listen to, you know, I don't know, currently reading or any of those book podcasts. And then I just have my friends, my book club itself. We're always sort of recommending books to each other. You're in a real life book club? I am in a real life book club. Yes. What kind of books do y'all read? Everything. Uh, we usually do, we do like a big book draft at the beginning of the year. So we kind of map out what books we're going to read throughout the whole year. And everybody comes with a couple suggestions and usually kind of everybody's, we, we draft them and everybody's choices. Everybody gets like one pick usually. And, and everybody's tastes are really different. I tend to be less on the historical fiction side and more on, you know, realistic or modern fiction.
0: How did your book club form? People are always asking, how do I even start a book club or join a book club?
1: I lived in New York after college. And when I moved back to the Chicago area, a number of my college friends were still in the area. And I like just wanted to kind of get back together with my friends who I hadn't really seen for a couple of years while I was living in New York. And so I started. I just sent a, a group email to whoever I knew that was living there and I said, "Let's start a book club. It'll be the better than Oprah's book club book club and I come to my house and let's start." And we started. I remember I didn't even have a kitchen table where we could all sit at. We like ate around my coffee table and I cooked all frozen foods from Trader Joe's because that was my culinary skill at the time. And we have been meeting every month for, well, that was almost that was 14 years ago. We've been meeting every month for 14 years.
0: My mouth just dropped open. <laughs> yeah. But also I mean I can still heat up some frozen food from Trader Joe's
1: oh, and love.
0: not and not even apologize for no. it for one second.
1: No, I love a frozen food from Trader Joe's. Love it.
0: man I love that. How many people are in your book
1: club? Uh we've got what is it now? 7 now? 7 or 8 right now and we've people have come and gone. There's been like a core of about 5 or 6 of us that have kind of been throughout and some people have come in and some people have moved and new people have come or you know it just kind of depends but there's about six of us from college that are that have been true the whole time. Yeah I
0: love that so much. One of the keys to friendship they say is consistency, like regular interaction, which I think makes a lot of sense. Like just the people that you see every day sort of because, you know, yeah. maybe you wouldn't choose them from a lineup, but then that that who be becomes who's in your world and that who you have deep relationship with. And if you want to be more intentional with it, like girls from college or whoever, then you have to like create that regularity. It doesn't always come natural. And so like a book club meeting or any kind of meeting I've always thought is like the best way to do that. Otherwise- Life is so busy and we end up being like not seeing the people that we want to see, that we choose to see on a regular basis. So it's uh, it's so interesting. Okay, thank you
1: for sharing all that. Okay, what is your second book that you've been reading lately?
0: Okay, my second pick for best books lately, I read in like a day and a half. I read it over the weekend, but it was one I had pre-ordered. I was super, super excited about it. And that is O. William by Elizabeth Strout. Now, I love uh, Elizabeth Strout. She is one of my very favorite authors that I only discovered in the last, I don't know, maybe three years, like recent for me. And I have been just like binging her. I love Elizabeth Strout so much. Earlier this year, I read Amy and Isabel, which is her first novel from like, I think 1997. And it is going to end up on my favorites of the year. Like I just love Elizabeth Stroud. Now, O. William is the third book. You you can read them independently. They're not necessarily like sequels and that there's not like a cliffhanger plot situation here, but with overlapping characters, the first one is my name is Lucy Barton, which I loved. And in this book, O. William that, that just came out this fall is also Lucy, Lucy Barton and her first husband william in o william which is a really short book again like i said i read it in a day and a half she and william are divorced they were married for decades they had two daughters but they are divorced they have both remarried and then some things happen that kind of bring them in much more i mean they were always in touch because they share the children and they live in the city and they have a close connection but a few things happen that bring them back into one another's immediate orbit and they end up sort of on a trip together kind of a road trip together to research something about William's past he is getting older they're both older in this book and he wants to know a little bit about his family history so they end up on this these two ex-spouses end up on this kind of road trip together and it's just like all of Elizabeth Strout's books the plot just doesn't matter These are all about the characters there is a sort of loose plot device here that kind of moves the story along, but I don't it just doesn't really matter that much, all of her books are about characters and these little tiny details that just make you feel like she notices everything. And it just makes you feel like you're right there. Like when I finished this book, even though I read it so quickly, I like missed these people. And this has happened to me with every Elizabeth Strout book. Like, I want to like check in, like, how are they doing?
1: That's like (laughs) a scientific book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's how you feel about her, about her books and her stories, but also because you're not like, oh, I wonder what happened because nothing hardly ever happens in these books but like you're just like I just want to check in on them like who they are you're just like so in their world you feel like you were like friends with them like you know them and a William in particular is about marriage Hmm. and even though these two Lucy and William have been divorced they know each other so well And they just get exasperated with each other. Like, Oh, Lucy. Oh, William. You know, that's kind of the, the root of the title is just like, you know, them so well, you can predict like what your spouse is going to say or do. And like that type of intimacy is just so rare. And then even if it ends on paper, you know, they got divorced when it circles back to them sort of being reconnected They've changed and they've evolved. They both married other people, like I said, but they know each other to the core, you know, and this is just, it's just about marriage and, and intimacy. And I Mm -hmm. loved it. I was thinking when I finished it, though, this isn't my favorite of hers. I did love it. I mean, like, I think I gave it five stars, but I was like, I couldn't even tell you what happened in this book. I mean, I I can tell you right now because I just finished it this weekend. But like in a few months, I'll be like, I don't even, I can't even tell you what that book is about, except that it's about Lucy and William. It's just about people. That's how all of her books are. And I just love Elizabeth Strout. I can't say enough about her. So, but you have to be in, you have to be into her. Like if you are just starting with Elizabeth Strout, I, somebody asked me this online. I would start with Olive Kitteridge. And then the follow-up to Olive Kitteridge came out. Mm, I think two years ago, the, it, it is more of a sequel, a little I would say, and it it's called Olive Again, and I'm not a book crier. I wept at the end of Olive Again, <laughs> like oh. I again I wept like I was losing a friend. And that's what, that's what Elizabeth Strout does. So every, they, oh, every
1: time you talk about Elizabeth Strout, I'm like, I need to read her. I, I haven't. And I always, I think her covers make me think she's going to be very flowery and I don't like flowery. I don't know what it is about her covers that I'm like, I don't think I'm going to like her. But then every time you talk about her, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta read one of these books. She's not flower. You know, I don't like flowery. I know she's not flowery.
0: She's sparse um, in a yeah. way that I like actually. I her I would agree with you that her covers leave a lot to be desired. <laughs> and I think that's why I didn't ever pick up Olive Kitteridge. Also it was I don't know, I didn't whatever. And that's not the first I read. The very first Elizabeth Shot I read was My Name is Lucy Barton. And I read it on vacation. And it's about a small town girl who moves to the city. So I had a connection to that book. And then now a William is following up with Lucy. So do
1: you need to have read? My name is Lucy Barton first.
0: No, they stand alone. I mean, you could probably benefit from understanding a younger Lucy versus this older version of Lucy, but you don't have to. It made me actually want to go reread Lucy Barton, which I think. Is only been, you know, it's only been a few years since I read it. But again, you're like, well, I don't even hardly remember what happened in that book because nothing ever happens in Elizabeth Stroud's books. <laughs> but reading older version of Lucy did make, and I, and she references things that from my name is Lucy Barton. One quick thing, well, just because you asked me one thing, quick thing about this book is it's very repetitive, but like in a purposeful way. And I was like, is she doing this? Is Lucy the character? doing this because she's older and older people repeat themselves a lot oh interesting so there's some things like that where at first I was like it kind of bugs that she's using the same phrase <laughs> and then I was like oh I mean it wasn't it wasn't so obvious you know what yeah. I mean it's almost like yeah Elizabeth Stroud does a lot of these subtle things it's masterful
1: she's masterful you have to read her okay okay you got me you got me I'll do it <laughs>
0: Y'all know that I love to play games on my phone to unwind and I am always looking for a new one to download and I recently ran across Two Dots and I want to tell you about it. Two Dots is a free to download puzzle-based game that involves connecting dots through relaxing puzzles while unlocking levels and collecting prizes along the way. There are different gameplay modes to make the experience unique and exciting with every single puzzle. There are over five thousand distinct puzzles with various power-ups and special dots ready to earn as you move through the levels. The in-app music and visually stimulating interface provide a soothing experience when you just want to relax and unwind. Not only is Two Dots free to download, but it can also be played without internet connection. So playing on the go offline is a breeze. And if you don't want to play alone, you can challenge your friends on Facebook as well as connect with the larger Two Dots community for even more engagement. If you're looking for the perfect game to help you relax but also keep you engaged, download Two Dots for free on Android and iOS. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to BornShoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's Born B O R N Shoes S H O E S. .com and use promo code TELL, TELL for 15% off and free shipping available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. Okay, now we're going to talk about classics. And again, we're talking about classics because we are going to read a few classics in Secret Stuff Book Club. But today we're just going to share books that we think people should read. And I'm going to start and I'm going to start <laughs> with a book that people are just going to like roll their eyes at because I really have preached about this book on and on for years. Hold on. Let me tell you what I'm not going to talk about. Like I was making my list of the books that I could talk about, the ones that I'm not going to talk about, but that I really want people to read. <laughs> Mrs. Dalloway, which I talked about on Books We Wish We'd Written, episode 126, yeah. what I recorded with my friend Sean Smucker about books we wish we'd written. I talked about Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. That is an amazing classic. It's very short. It's a day in the life. You have no excuse not to read that book because it's fantastic and an easy read. I'm not going to talk about Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. I know you don't like Russian lit. I was reading Anna Karenina the first time that Jeff, my husband, and I had a real conversation. I was reading Anna Karenina on the set of Jackass, his first movie. And he was like, literally, what are you doing? Like, this is Jackass.
1: That does feel like the start of a movie. Like that's the start of some rom-com. Like girl on Jackass set reading Russian literature.
0: <laughs> oh, I was so snobby back then. <laughs> and I do not recommend that people read that unless they are up for it. That, it's a beautiful, amazing, obviously classic novel, but like it's it's a task. And it has a depressing ending. <laughs> Anyway, um, (laughs) Confederacy of Denses, I'm not going to talk about that by John Kennedy Toole. I love that book. You know what's funny? I reread A Confederacy of Denses a few years ago, and I had loved this book in college. I, and maybe late high school, I read this several times when I was younger, and I just thought it was like quirky and hilarious and I hadn't read anything like it when I was a young person and I reread it recently. And I'm not going to say it doesn't hold up because it is still very funny and quirky, you know, reading it in my probably late thirties, whenever I read it, I was like, Oh yeah, I don't know. You maybe have to be in the right age bracket mm. to super appreciate a confederacy of dunces, but it's still, it's still a great book, but you know, I, it, it might be an example of one of those of like, don't revisit something that you deeply love when you were young. Cause you might, see it, any weaknesses or like problems with it when you're older anyway okay I'm also not going to talk about in Cold Blood by Truman Capote I love this book this is um, a really genre bending genre changing book in Cold Blood by Truman Capote it is for true crime fans if you have not read this book you must it also really, it is said in some ways really de- destroyed his life, and um, so that's sort of like a sad part of it. But it is a absolute classic. I'm not going to talk about it. What <laughs> I am going to talk about. Those are all the books that I want you to read, but I'm not going to give many minutes to. I am going to talk about Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. I love this book so much. I love it so much that I feel like I talk about it maybe like occasionally this is not a surprise that I'm going to share it but it absolutely belongs on this episode because it is something that maybe a lot of us read in high school or middle school even maybe and I promise you that if you read this when you were young you did not get it you did not get this book you have to (laughs) reread it with some life experience you have to reread it with a different lens although that said this was written by Mary Shelley when she was 18 years old. I did not know that. She was 18. Now it was oh, wow. published in 1818. She wrote it in about 1816. It was a really different world back then. Like lifespan was different. Like being 18 was like different than being 18 is now. She actually wrote it as part of a friendly competition with her lover who became her husband, Percy Biss Shelley. And Lord Byron, they sort of had this, like, they were really into Gothic novels. They were really into the occult. They were sort of like, you know, that was what was trendy at the time. And they sort of had a friendly competition to see who could write the best horror story. And this is what Mary Shelley came up with. Can you imagine just being like 18 and like doing a little fun project with friends and it becoming like a classic of all time?
1: The icon of Frankenstein is like, has centuries That's amazing. It is
0: so crazy. It's considered one of the first science fiction stories. It actually is science fiction, as I think most people know by now, but Frankenstein is not the monster, is not what we picture as Frankenstein with like the bolts coming out of his neck. The Frankenstein is the scientist. Frankenstein is the doctor who created the monster out of cadaver parts and, you know, he sort of stitched together and was able to kind of breathe life in some sciencey way, some eighteen hundred sciencey way, to create the monster who, throughout the whole story, never has a name. He's called the monster. He's called the creature. He's called the devil. He's called the fiend. And this whole book, you can just read it as a story. Like you can read it as a story: a, a doctor creates a monster, and then they chase each other through time, <laughs> like. He is scared of the monster. So when the monster sort of comes alive, Frankenstein, the doctor, runs away. But then he ends up sort of chasing and trying to find the monster to maybe kill him. So throughout the book, they're sort of chasing each other, who is chasing one or the other. You can read it as that, like just a a very short story. It's only 260 pages. So you can read the novel as kind of on its face. But there's so much more about it. There's so much more about identity here, about God and being a creator and having a love-hate relationship with your creator. And, you know, there's a lot of things to think about here in terms of like, is this really about the monster? Is the monster real? Or is this like a metaphor for mental health or Mm -hmm. addiction? Mm -hmm. Because they really chase each other through time, and I don't want to get like into the whole plot summary of it all, but it's so interesting. Like the the monster promises Frankenstein that he's going to show up on his wedding night. So then, on his wedding night, Frankenstein is like arms himself, and is he really scared of the monster? Is he really scared of himself? Like, there's just so much happening in this book that is like amazing, but also. not not scary scary so it's not horror like what you might think of when you think of that word but like it's very psychological the whole book is very psychological and very well written and it's just it's just what's to this test of time and I want more people to read it I think people don't read it because they think they maybe already know some version the pop culture version of Frankenstein and they don't at all what we think of now as the Halloween Frankenstein is not it all what this novel is and I also want people to read it because it's short and still challenging like we were saying like it's not so challenging like Russian lit or whatever but it's you know you have to use your brain a little bit more yeah you just put it down and you just for me I just exhaled like I was just like this is what storytelling is like Mary Shelley has really nailed it in this competition with her buddies <laughs> she wins
1: I love all of that I don't I th- I read Frankenstein probably in like middle school or high school, and I have very vague memories of it. So that is one I'm probably going to need to revisit, I think.
0: I love it. I talk about it. I feel like I do talk about it a lot. I don't care. I really am just like, I'm an evangelist for certain things, right? Like I'm an evangelist for Stephen King. I'm an evangelist for Frankenstein and I want people to read it. So that's my first pick. What is your first pick for a classic that people should read?
1: Well, similarly, my first pick is for me, sort of the reason why you should revisit classics. And that is Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. So uh, picture high school, Colleen, junior year. Mr. Pirro was my teacher and he was one of those like very, he was very strict. He was very high expectations and you wanted to impress him, but you most often you did not. And uh, I remember I was out the day that he introduced catcher in the rye. And so I got to class the next day. And so it was just, he was just talking to me and he was giving me the book and kind of going over what he had talked about. And he, I just will never forget him. He like, kind of like held the book really tightly. And he was like, you are going to love this book. And I was like, okay. And I was so excited to like, love this book. And Mr. Pirro thought that I was going to love it. And that really meant something. And I read it and I did not love it. I don't, I, I don't even know if I finished it. I probably cliff notes the last like third of it, which was typically my MO. And I was so disappointed in myself. Like I was like, Mr. P. I let Mr. Pirro down. I didn't love this book. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why I didn't like it. It just was not landing with me. And then fast forward like 10 years in my book club I talked about we decided to revisit a classic and that was the one that we picked and at that point I read it as you know a 27 28 year old adult who had lived in New York for a couple of years which a lot of this book takes place in New York City and all of a sudden I could understand what was happening in the book where things were what was going on and then I could it like opened up the whole book for me. And I think sometimes in, as high school students, we don't always have the right context or understanding of like very practical, detaily things that can then get us stuck on like the deeper meanings of the book. And that is what happened to me. I think if there had been some better scaffolding for a kid who had never been to New York City and didn't. Know a lot about what New York in the 1940s was like. If I'd had a little bit more of that, I might have been able to get to what was so great about the book. So the book follows teenager Holden Caulfield, who's a student at a boarding school. He's about to get kicked out of school. And so he kind of runs away from home to avoid his parents until they find out that he's been kicked out. And he Sort of goes through New York City on this adventure, um, and he meets a cast of characters, and it's it's a whole thing. And what I love about this book, and why I think it is timeless is that Salinger really captures the persona of a teenage boy in this book. The voice that he gives Holden as somebody who worked with teens through much of my career, I just like, it's so endearing to me and I can hear what kids think about and care about as I read it. As an adult, I just, a lot of it still resonated with me and certainly resonated with kids that I knew. And it's consistently listed as one of the best novels of the 20th century, regarded as the defining work of what it's like to be a teenager. So when I was doing some research about Catcher in the Rye, did you know that several shootings have been associated with this book? I
0: did because I'm a pretty big Salinger fan, even though the Catcher in the Rye is not my favorite Salinger, but it is because it's dark. It's
1: dark, yes. And it, and there's a lot of stuff about mental illness and you're not really sure what's exactly going on. Caulfield's not exactly a reliable narrator. I didn't know the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan and also the John Lennon assassination in which his shooter had a copy of the book and he had written inside to Holden Caulfield from Holden Caulfield, this is my statement. And that was found on him. He was arrested with that copy of the book. Yeah, it was in his back pocket, right? Yeah, yeah. so it's a, it's an important book culturally. I, like I said, for me, there was such joy to go back and read it and be like, oh, now I understand why Mr. Pirro thought I would love this book. I did love the book. And I do love that it takes place in New York. And he kind of goes all throughout the city in that book. And I just think it's a really lovely book that if you revisit it as an adult, you might have a little bit more of the context that you needed. So I loved it when I read it
0: in I probably high school I actually don't recall when I first read it but probably high school and you know I think the experience of The Catcher in the Rye for most people is like they've never read anything like it it really is unique in its voice and if you've had to read you know if you've had to endure like Beowulf and all this (laughs) other stupid stuff that then to read Catcher in the Rye is like oh such a relief you know it's almost like the equivalent of like reality TV to like really prestige, you know, that scripted TV. That's what it feels like when you're a teenager is because there's this casual voice, this angsty voice that you haven't really seen reflected, or that's how it was for me when I read it in the 90s. I did have a friend, this has been a while ago now, but who read it for the first time as an adult. And I remember she posted on Facebook about it, that she was like, I hate Holden Caulfield. She was like, he's so whiny and entitled. And he sort of is like kind of the things that we hate about teenagers in a way. And now she was in her thirties when she would have been reading this. And I understood what she meant, but I was like, but I think you're actually meant to read this when Mm -hmm. you are a teenager Mm -hmm. or maybe just after, you know, early twenties or something where you really relate to his angst. I think most of us mature out of that navel gazing level of angst, or that just woe is me, you know, like that just feel sorry for yourself kind of thing. Now, obviously it's deeper than feeling sorry for yourself. Holden Caulfield has very intense mental health issues, Mm -hmm. which when this was published and when we were taught it, that was not being discussed. No, Teenage suicide and really taking teenage angst as like serious and not as a cliche was not, you know, a thing when I first read it. So I do think that that book is doing some important things. I just wonder, I do wonder if people hadn't ever read it. If you revisit it, you might feel nostalgia. If you have never read it before, I wonder if
1: you'd be like my friend that'd be like, I don't get it. He's the worst. Well, and maybe because I was, I was working with high school students at the time. I did not think he was the worst. I thought, I mean, he was the worst in the ways that he was the worst, but it was still, he was still endearing to me. And that might just be my affinity for high schoolers, which has never really left. So that's funny. Well, if I, we're going to talk about Salinger, I'm just, I'm going to have to mention if you
0: like Salinger and you haven't read, or you liked *Katherine the Rye and you haven't read any of the Glass family stories, which my favorite is Franny and Zoe, but there's mm-hmm. also a perfect day for banana fish. Like there's like, a, like he writes about the Glass family, the siblings, mostly in the Glass family. And they're so good. Have you read
1: those? I don't, I don't think I have actually. Now I'm going to have to add that to my list. Oh, they're so
0: good. So uh, Nine Stories is a short story collection and there's several glass family stories in the book, Nine Stories. I think the most famous one is A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, but then Franny and Zoe, that book is one of my favorites of all time. If you don't like this kind of tone, like if you don't like Holden, you're not going to like it. I mean, you know, this is how Salinger writes. Like this is, you know, they're all just like awful slash relatable, you know, just like love it so much. I could talk about Franny and Zoe all day long. I wanted to name my child Zoe. Jeff was a hard no. I mean, not because that's like a beautiful name and we have now friends like become a trendy name, but I love that book. So anyway, okay. Moving forward. What's your next one? Okay, my next one is sort of on the cusp of being called a classic. I mean, it is a classic, like it sort of is, but it isn't. And I'm going to talk about it though because I think it's very accessible, even though it's freaking 700 pages long. It's The Thornbirds by Colleen McCullough. I've not heard of this. One. You've never heard of The Thornbirds? I've never heard of The Thornbirds. No. Okay, this is why I was like, it's sort of, it sort of straddles classic I, you know I looked up a couple of different lists when we were prepping for this show and then also like thinking about secret stuff book club and it's never in like the top 100 lists or maybe or like maybe not the top 50 it sort of falls in the same cusp level as Rebecca by Daphne demarier do you know mm-hmm. that book Rebecca I do yeah I feel like the Thornbirds is in that same. Like really highbrow intellectual people will maybe like be like, this is not a classic, <laughs> but it's sort of like a classic. I don't know, I consider it a classic. We're gonna talk about it anyway. I met Colleen McCullough when I was in college. She like came to speak at my college, and I had just read it. So it also like made a real impression on me. sort of your experience of the book and then getting to meet the author or whatever really colors your experience. But I read I've since read this book, and it is so good it is a sweeping family saga Mm -hmm. it like spans the cleary family from 1915 to like 1969 ish and they are an australian actually they're i think new zealand but the it's set in an australian cattle ranch so in the middle of nowhere i mean like literally there's not anything for hundreds of miles in this family the cleary family lives there and it but it is not their farm it is the the dad it is his very rich sister's farm who the sister has never been married never had children and the brother who runs her big cattle ranch you know has all these kids and a wife and all this then and so you're, you're learning about all the siblings all the relationship dynamics it's truly a sweeping family saga at 700 pages you're getting a lot of family drama so if you like that it's it is juicy, you know, all the things happen, but the primary romance and the kind of like why people, I don't know, like what people really remember the primary romance relationship is the daughter in this family, Meg, Maggie, when we meet her, she's like just been born. So we like kind of follow her whole life. The primary romance is with her and Gertrude your loins, a priest in the Australian outback and what is kind of shocking is that the priest meets her when she's a toddler. Now he doesn't fall in love with her in that moment. There's no like outright abuse or anything here, but it, it is
1: a very strange situation. But he's and not, he's not hot young priest when they fall in love. He's like older dad priest.
0: No, he, when they fall in love, he is older, but I, he, he's hot young priest when we, when we meet him as a
1: reader. Okay. Okay.
0: Now I was reading, I was like looking up a summary or whatever of this book to talk about it today. And I remembered on a reread of this, but now it's been a long time. What I focused on when I first read this book, when I was, you know, my early 20s was this romance and then all the family stuff. There's like, you know, illnesses and deaths and, you know, it's a family thing. And I loved all the like juicy, it's very salacious. It's it's one of the reasons that I kind of think people would really enjoy it, even at such great length is because it is like a soap opera you know in some ways which is i think why it would be lower brow for some considered a classic but so so well done and i loved all those elements when i was young there were other things happening that i did not understand <laughs> which is which is why we revisit classics right i mean there were things happening with the sister who owned the ranch and her will and the Catholic Church and and like money and motivation. I just focused on the priest Ralph is his name, Ralph and Meg's romance, their lifelong, and it's more than just like a sexual thing, like their lifelong love affair Mm -hmm. which this gets obviously tricky to talk about because when they meet when she's a toddler and they're they're like what connection means and like this gets into it's very dicey territory by the way which is why this would make an amazing book club pick if you're ever up for reading something of this length this would be like a fantastic book club pick but there's a lot of stuff there that I definitely didn't understand with the catholic church him being a priest um and his tie to this family and all this wealth and there was just a lot of that stuff, like kind of the political aspect of it, if you will, that I did was like, I didn't get any of that first time around, for sure. And so I li- I do like reading books like that that are sort of set in a moment. I mean, I, that's still relevant to this day, but like, yeah, I just like revisiting it and being like, oh, I see there's other things happening here besides like the salacious parts. So anyway, it's called The Thornbirds. It's classic-ish.
1: The Thorn I this is on my this on my list now. I think I am going to make my book club read that. So some of them listen. So get ready, guys.
0: It was made into a really very famous miniseries in the 80s, like a TV miniseries that was like the most popular TV miniseries for decades, like coming in second to roots. Oh wow. Which obviously was like a huge, important mini-series for people. The Thornbirds, this is what put that book on the map. And it was like super popular. And I think they had their version. <laughs> I didn't, in the eighties, I was a child, but the hot young priest, like the flea bag hot priest, like it was like that version in the these where people were like, oh, yes. oh, which, hi, can we talk about There's so many problems here? So many problems.
1: Oh, I love it. I love it. But anyway,
0: it's a good read. And I'm not only talking about it because I have a connection to it and love it, but also because. Like I said, it's more accessible, it's an easy read, it's an easy mm-hmm. drama. It's you're mm-hmm. it, you're not having to work at it, which, yeah. you know, that's a nice entry point for a classic.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love it.
0: With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating, and yes more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free. It is also pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. .com and use code U, YOU.
1: Okay, my next one is Native Son by Richard Wright. So this was published in 1940, and it is the story of 20-year-old Bigger Thomas, a young Black man living in a poor area on Chicago's South Side in the 1930s. So the beginning of the story, you kind of see just the depth of poverty that he and his family live in, and obviously what is happening racially. He's in the North, so he's not necessarily dealing with Jim Crow, but He was still very much marginalized and a victim of what was happening racially in society. And he works as a chauffeur for a wealthy white family. And on his first job, he is supposed to take their college age daughter back to school. And things don't go as planned. Mary, the daughter sort of. Tells Bigger to take her somewhere else. They go pick up some friends. She ends up getting very drunk. And in an effort to keep Mary safe, Bigger takes her home and he carries her up to her bedroom because she's incapacitated. And as she he is trying to kind of get her situated, Mary's blind mother comes in to make sure she's in bed. And Bigger knows that if he gets caught in Mary's room as a white woman and he being a black man, he's going to be accused of rape and he's going to be convicted and will be sentenced to either life or to death, life in prison or to death. And so he, in an effort to keep her quiet, he puts a pillow over her face and ends up accidentally killing her in the process. And so the rest of the story sort of follows him, what he did after that, his fleeing and and all of the things. Um, I don't want to give too much away because it's a really good story, but uh, it is a page turner. It is unbelievably well written and you just like want to keep reading. And one of the reasons why I, I remember reading this book and just being blown away by it. It stuck with me so much. And I remember telling people as I was reading it, as the story progresses, bigger makes terrible decisions. And he does some really bad things as the story goes on and you are rooting for him to the very end. Like you just really, you fall in love with, with him as a a character, but also like when you start to understand what happens and the kind of choices you make when you don't have really very many choices, it just, it sort of opens up that gray area. And I remember reading this as a young person, and it was one of the first books that really opened up that gray area of like, this person does really bad things, but also I understand why he did them. And I don't want him to necessarily get what's coming to him. It's, It's also one of the first books of its time where it wasn't the noble black character, right? So bigger is complicated. He's not, I wouldn't say he's an anti-hero, but he, like I said, he makes really poor choices. And in that era, we had the, like, you know, the to kill a mockingbird and, and black characters that were totally noble and were wrongfully accused of things. And this is something that's a little bit different and yet you still very much are rooting for and supporting this character. It, was a huge success. It was. Um, it's described as a protest novel and it was one of the earliest successful attempts to explain kind of the racial divide in America in terms of what was being imposed on African-American social conditions by the dominant white society. Uh, it made Wright the wealthiest black writer of his time and just, it's so good. I just, I absolutely loved it. I think it's a really important read. And I think right now it would be just a compelling story that uh, also has some really great things to think about as you read it.
0: What year was that
1: published? It was published in 1940.
0: Have you read Their Eyes Were Watching God? I love Their Eyes Were Watching
1: God. Oh, I me love too. Their Eyes Were Watching God.
0: By Zora Neale Hurston. Mm-hmm. I just had to look up what year that was published, and it was actually published in 1937. So, okay, you know, so same time. Close to the yeah. same time. And also has some similar things in what you're talking about, in which there's like a lot of it's very complicated and there's some bad choices, but there's also just like deep historical uh, implications. Mm-hmm. And I loved that book. I read that book. I did not read that book when I was young. I should have, I think I was supposed to, and I didn't like in one of my college courses, I remember it being assigned and, uh, but I don't have any recollection of it. I reread it or or read it for the first time, whatever, a few years ago and was just blown away by that novel, which is difficult. There's some Mm -hmm. really difficult things in their eyes were watching God. And I don't, I wonder if that book, it's so difficult. I wonder if it's even taught anymore.
1: Their eyes were watching God. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I I mean, I certainly also read that in high school. I read it again with you actually a couple of years ago. And um, I remember, you know, loving it in high school and then again, loving it when I read it again. Um, Wait, you read it in my yeah. great books book club? Yeah, I did. Colleen, that was years ago. I didn't even know. Laura, I told you, it's like literally since you started, I have been on this ride with you. <laughs> well, I
0: did not know. I'm so glad you told me that. Yes, I read I read it for, it was one of my picks a few years ago for my Read Great Books book club. Oh, such a good title for a book club, Read Great Books. It was. Yeah, I was just like, that book is so good. I mean, I I didn't like prep enough to talk too much about it, but in this conversation, it fits perfectly. I have not read Native Son. And so that's what made me think of Their Eyes Were Watching God. But hearing you talk about it, it's on my list exactly now.
1: So one of the things that I think like Zora Neale Hurston did in like Native Son, like Richard Wright's doing with Native Son is that we are getting to see Black characters in their full humanity. And I think so often we al- we're allowed to see white anti-hero characters, right? But the Black characters have to be either fully good or they're the fully evil bad guys or whatever and so to allow us to see it in its full complexity even if that makes us uncomfortable even if we want it to show a better picture of you know of a marginalized group I think when we the more we can be comfortable with seeing characters in their full humanity the more equity we get for everyone that we need to be able to see everyone in their full humanity and not have to fit into some mold that sort of shows the best light of that representation.
0: Right. Or cliche or something. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's so good. Oh, that's so good. I'm so glad that you talked about that one. I want to go read it now. So my last one is a classic, classic. Like it's like considered, you know, one of the best novels, you know, maybe of all time. It's like always in the top of any of these lists that you Google or anything. And I'm talking about it because Again, I've chosen books that I think people might be intimidated by and they are way easier to read than you think they're going to be. It is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Jane Eyre is, you know, like it's Jane Eyre. Like I feel like it is still in 2021, like a thing that is referenced, you know, in some ways I think we maybe don't even know if you haven't read it, you don't even know that the whole mad woman in the attic like trope or jokes or cultural references. That's what they're talking about, you guys. That is a thing that happens in Jane Eyre, which was written by Charlotte Bronte, was published in 1847. It is over 500 pages, but don't be intimidated. It is readable. It was originally published as Jane Eyre, an autobiography. That was the full title. And it was also published under a pen name. Her pen Hmm. name was Kerr Bell. It was also published in like five parts, Now we read it as a whole novel by Charlotte Bronte, one of the Bronte sisters. Jane is an orphan. She lives unhappily with her uncle's family. They do not treat her well. Her aunt-in-law or whatever, they do not treat her well. She's abused there. They end up sending her away to a school for like poor girls, you know, where None of the girls are are treated well. Eventually, after this very difficult childhood, she takes a job as a governess at a, you know, big mansion called Thornfield Hall, where she meets Edward Rochester. And, you know, this is sort of our primary relationship and and story and kind of what people think about now, because he is, in fact, Edward is quite a complicated man. And... <laughs> Turns out he has something in the attic. I can't, I I don't even want to like, is that a spoiler because this book was published in
1: 1847? (laughs) No, there's no spoilers. If you, yeah, there's no spoilers here. But this
0: book is really good. It's considered, especially for having been published in 1847, it's considered one of the first feminist novels Mm. and like really set a lot of uh, conversations in motion because Jane insists upon like some- equality and fair treatment. And she knows that she's smart and she sort of knows who she is. She's very self-possessed. And this isn't how women were written so publicly, so widely back then. You know, she's not perfect either, but and as like, you know, feminism in 2021 is obviously going to be a whole different animal. But when you read it, you can see this, like what is happening here, that this was a a different version. I mean, of course, Jane Austen wrote these really strong, amazing feminine characters, but Jane Eyre is like, you know, she's like a whole thing. And I read this book when I was trying to read great books and I was trying to read more classics, I had not read, I for sure had not read this one when I was younger. And it was so intimidating to me, just the title of it, hearing the word Bronte, because I had read Weathering Heights when I was like, oh Lord, it's going to be a real task. And I was surprised by how good it was. And maybe this is like often true with classics, which is why we're talking about this, is that you, especially if you're so used to reading easier contemporary work which and I do I read a lot of stuff that's very contemporary that when you read something classic when you read something older you're like oh this is a whole different meal that we're having this is like a whole different thing and Jane Eyre is definitely that where you're like oh this is what novels like used to be before there were bestseller lists, before there was books to grab, you know, like all of these ways to mass consume how many amazing books there were. There used to not be so many books published when they were worthy of being published like this. And when they were like mass successes, even if we think they're a chore now, Charles Dickens or something like that, you realize like, oh, there were so few works that connected with the masses or even the elites because not everyone had uh, access to books you know, so readily, but that had a, a broad appeal. There were so few of them and the ones that were, you know, a lot of them have, have was the test of time for a reason. Yeah. And Jane Eyre really, really, really proves its worth. And I think when I started it, I was like, this is going to be like homework, but I want to do it because I want to better myself or whatever. <laughs> And then, But then when I read it, I was like, oh no, this is, this is why we read, right? Yeah. Like this is why, yeah. and the Bronte sisters are a force and Jane Eyre as a character is, you're just, you're rooting for her and there's some shocking plot twists. We've obviously revealed like the biggest one, but you're just, you know, Edward is cantankerous to say the least. And it's just, it's, there's some parts of it that are just like funny and witty and then like shocking. Yeah. I just, I loved it so much more than I thought I would. And so I wanted to talk about Jane Eyre by
1: Charlotte Bronte. I love that. I love that. I think once you get those kinds of classics that are like classic classics are intimidating, but once you get into the cadence of it, it starts, it's almost like a muscle. You just kind of got to like work a little bit at the beginning of like, this is how people are speaking. And these are some things I need to like, once you get into it, then you get to like really enjoy the great work that it is. And you're right. Like those things stick around because they're good. You know, they, they lasted this long because they were worthy of it. Okay. Now
0: for our last book, we're going to talk about that. You're going to share about, we're talking about it because this is the secret stuff book club pick for November. And so we are going to be reading this book in November and discussing it at the end of the month. We let the Secret Stuff members choose this book. I put a poll up on the Secret Stuff Patreon book club where I let them choose between Frankenstein, Great Expectations, because I know Dickens is such a beast and bore, but I really wanted to revisit Great Expectations because I did like that one. Also, there's a Gwyneth Paltrow movie version. Anyway, moving on. And the winner, Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. I cannot believe... That the members chose Little Women. I can, but here's why I can't believe it. I've never read this book. Yeah. And so this is crazy to me, but we voted. The votes are in and clear. We are reading Little Women by Louisa May Alcott for the Secret Stuff Book Club. You can sign up for that by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret stuff. I'll put links in the show notes if you want to join us for this discussion. Maybe you've never read Little Women either. And so you want to read it for the first time with me. And then we can talk about it over Zoom. Or maybe this is like your beloved favorite of all time. And you want to come in and tell us your feelings about the sisters. Now, I'm not trying to talk. (laughs) I'm not trying to like set this up with disdain. But I've
1: never read this book because... It seems sweet, <laughs> delightful and charming. Maybe it might be when I'm just like, God these sisters are going to be sweeties. <laughs> and So
0: I'm, I am going to read it for the first time I'm going to come in. I know I've never seen the movie either. Little women. I know there's definitely all kinds of movie versions, including like the Winona Rider famous one, and then a recent one that people like loved or whatever. So I know just from cultural reference, a little bit about little women like somebody dies, right? Like a sister dies. Like I'm ready. I'm going to read it. It's going to be fine. But I really want to hear Colleen, because you have read it. I want to hear why it's a classic and you know why it's
1: worth reading. Well, I have read it. This is, there's a reason why I get to talk about this book and not you. But it is Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, and it is sort of a coming-of-age novel. It was originally published in two volumes in 1868 and 1869, and then it was turned into one book after that, and it follows the lives of the four March sisters, the Little Women, Meg, Jo, Beth, and Amy. Amy. It's actually loosely based on the lives of Alcott and her sisters and the four girls and their mother Marmee live in what's described as genteel poverty in Massachusetts in the 1800s. Their father is a chaplain for the union army in the civil war. And so he is off and away. And it sort of tells the story of these girls as they grow from adolescence to young adulthood. The sisters are very different. Meg is the oldest responsible kind of perfect little woman, if you will. Joe is the rebel. She's smart. She's strong willed She's a bit of a tomboy. With a temper that gets her into trouble. Beth is the gentle, kind, selfless, like perfect angel sister. And Amy is the baby. She's a little spoiled and self-centered depending on which movie you've seen. You have different impressions of Amy. And then there's also Lori, which is the boy next door who is often hanging out with the girls. This book matters because when it was first published, the printing company had trouble keeping up with the demand for copies. It was one of the most widely read novels. And I think to be published in 1860 with the title Little Women, there were not a lot of books for and about young girls and young women at the time. And so it's celebrated for giving different models of non-traditional womanhood in the girls. Joe is a very Kind of non-traditional woman character. It normalized ambitious women. It made professional writing in an aspirational career. And it's told the story of women in that in-between place of childhood and adulthood, which wasn't really done much at the time. As we mentioned, there have been countless movie adaptations. Greta Gershwin's is the best, and I will fight anyone <laughs> who wants to say that Winona Ryder's is better. It's not. Wait,
0: wait let me guess is the perfect one the one that croaks don't tell me don't Just you gotta read
1: it you gotta me. read it
0: also every time that you say joe all i picture is facts of life
1: isn't, <laughs> isn't that, the, isn't that kinda, the rebel
0: character i kind of wonder if that life? was
1: like named after her now i feel like that might be a thing that i didn't know about
0: and aren't there four facts of life girls too i'm gonna have to look this up i'm actually friends with uh oh, yeah. Mitchell, who played Blair on Facts of Life. Maybe I'll text her now.
1: Maybe you need to ask her.
0: Okay. I'm going to do it, y'all. I'm going to do it. I'm super excited. I am excited because I think that the best book club meetings are always the ones where, you know, there's something polarizing about the book or the story or the characters or something, you know, it's not fun to go to a book club meeting and everyone just be like, well, that was amazing. Yay, amazing, good writing, yay. Like that's a boring meeting. It's so much better to go to a meeting when you're like, I hated it or why did this happen? Or you know what I mean? It's just so much better to have that type of a book club meeting. And so I'm super excited about it. I'm not gonna come in. I'm not, I'm trying to like not be biased. Can you tell?
1: Yes, I can tell you're doing a great job. Awesome job! <laughs> What's hilarious to me is that I think this was the one that we kind of threw in, like we were like, ah, and I guess just Little Women, and then it won.
0: <laughs> I am excited to lead a book club meeting or, or lead a book club discussion that is on a book I haven't already read. Yeah. So all you know, we read Stephen King all summer before before Secret Stuff Patreon. I you know did that read great books book club years ago, which we already referenced, where we read the eyes, their eyes were watching God. And a few other things. And I loved leading that book club. It was on Facebook and sort of pre-Zoom and like the functionality was harder. This was literally years ago, but I vetted all of those books first. Like I've always picked a book that I thought would be a good pick, right? Like I read it first and was like, oh, this would be a good pick for anything, anything I've ever done online. This is the first time I'm going to read the book or we've, we've chosen something and I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm waiting into. But I mean, it's a classic, like it's not.
1: And it's a very accessible classic. Like if you are maybe listening and you're like, I kind of want to participate, but I don't like classics. This is a, you know, traditional classic that is very accessible. It's a story that a lot of people are familiar with. And so I think it's a good entry point to a more classically written book. Than some of the other ones, we didn't like dive all the way into Jane Eyre guys. We, we started with little women.
0: (laughs) Oh, I do now that I've talked about it. I kind of do want to reread Jane Eyre, (laughs) but maybe we'll do, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to read another classic after this. We might go with second place. The book club members voted Frankenstein got second place. So we might end up reading Frankenstein again, or we might just like do a whole new poll, a whole new set of books. I, I don't know. It's very fun to read together. It's better to read together. I think books like this, classics is a a great way to read together because you know you're going to get to discuss it. And if you feel like you don't understand a part or like you really need to express your opinion about a theme or a character or something, you're going to get a chance to do so. That's what is amazing about all book clubs. I will also put a link since we keep talking about book clubs. I did an episode called How to Start a Book Club. It was actually the first episode of this year. Episode 98 is called How to Start a Book Club. Gives lots of tips. If you're thinking about it, if you want to join one, if you want to start your own, I'll link to that in the show notes, but I'm very pro book club. I'm especially pro secret stuff book club. And I would love everyone to
1: join us to read friggin' little women. If only to watch Laura squirm about having to talk about little women.
0: But wait, can you just tell me, I don't want any spoilers,
1: but Mm -hmm. can you just tell me like, is it sweet? I mean there's some family drama there is some betrayal it is sweet but also it has it has some heft to it okay i'm
0: going to have been glad i read it that was a lot of weird tenses but like i know that this is a book that i should have read like that people should read and when we were prepping for this episode i was going through some of these lists of you know 100 best books of all time, most classic novels of all time, whatever, I was reading a bunch of different from different credible sources, these lists and sort of just looking through and there's a ton, obviously a ton of crossover on, on these lists, but it was making me be like, oh, oh, I want to read this one or, oh, that one was great. I, that would love a reread. And so even though we're only planning for Secret Stuff Book Club to just do two, maybe three classics. I don't know, we might return to this again, because I think this is a super worthy exercise. And it's something to consider if you had your own book club to maybe do a year of reading the classics like this, or uh, just to challenge yourself to challenge ourselves to to revisit some of these books. And maybe i link to some of the lists themselves, just so you yeah. can browse the list yourself and it kind of gets your juices flowing, especially if you're in a book rut. I feel like a lot of times you see this online. People are like, oh, I'm in a book rut. What should I do? And there's always really good suggestions. We'll switch to audio, you know, binge a Netflix series instead, you know, change up genres. Like there's lots of good tips for getting out of a book rut. I think one of the most proven ones is to read something older or a classic because it really does like, it makes you remember you know, it's not just like trying to get to the end to figure out who done it, you know? Yeah. Re- and I, I like thrillers, so there's nothing wrong with that. But like, it makes you remember like, this is why yeah, literature has stayed so important, you know, throughout all of time. Not all of time, but anyway. I loved talking books with you, Colleen. This was so fun. Me too. Me too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me on 10 Things to Tell You. Everyone, I want to hear your favorite classic books I really want to sort of be compiling this list of things that I want to read or reread so on social media this week in the 10 things to tell you connection group please do share your favorite classic novel and why you loved it I'm really looking forward to hearing you so thanks so much for listening friends